My name is Carl Bowden. I'm one of the stewards here at the church. And I'm going to be speaking to you today about the first Sunday in Lent. The sermon title, as you probably see on your bulletin, and I haven't seen a copy of the bulletin this morning, so I hope that it's there. Who are you following? Is the title that is the title of my sermon? I'm not sure what's in the bulletin. But today is the first Sunday in Lent. This year during Lent, we will be focusing on 1 Corinthians as we prepare our hearts to reflect on Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We can learn from the Corinthians' warts, so to speak. And I'm, gl- I'm grateful for the input of Dr. Gordon Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians and the New King James Study Bible Commentary as I prepared this message. So where is Corinth? And what was the city of Corinth like? What was it known for? Well, Corinth was a city located on the Greek coast, right on a four-and-a-half-mile strip of land. For you geography people, it's called an isthmus. Bing defines an isthmus as a narrow strip of land with sea on either side, forming a link between two larger areas of land. If you, if you picture... Can you picture Greece in your, in your, you have a, somewhat of an idea of Greece? If, you, if I hold out my arm and the lower part, the hand, is what we would call the Peloponnesus. Can you picture that part of Greece? And then my wrist is the Isthmus. Okay, and up, the rest of Greece is further up. But Corinth is right where my wrist is as you're thinking about Greece. It was, a, it was a city that controlled the overland commercial traffic from Italy to Asia. Plus, as a seaport, ships and sailors stopped there from all over the world. Those sailors brought their cultures, their languages, and their thirst for immorality, unfortunately. In B.C. times, Corinth was the city where the Greek goddess Aphrodite, or you might know her as Venus, was worshipped. Aphrodite was described as the goddess of fertility, sexual love, and beauty. There also was a temple in Corinth to the Greek god Apollo, the god of poetry, art, archery, sun, knowledge, and music. And Corinth, for you, those of you interested in athletics, was known for the Isthmian Games. Anybody heard of the Isthmian Games? Anybody heard of the Olympic Games? Okay, well, the Isthmian Games were second only to the Olympic Games. And the Isthmian Games were known for chariot racing, boxing, and wrestling. How are those for three good athletic competitions? Not exactly what you and I follow today necessarily. 
But the people of Corinth were mostly Romans and Greeks. They were Gentiles. Many of the Romans had the status of freedmen, which on the Roman cultural ladder was a step above Roman slaves. There also was not much of a Greek community in Corinth. It was mostly a Gentile community at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. So, Carl, how did the church in Corinth get started? Oh, I'm, I'm glad you asked. If, if you have your Bibles and would like to turn there, Acts 18, 1 through 4, tells us, and you can take a look at it, Acts 18, 1 through 4, I'm not going to read it to you, but it tells us that Paul traveled to Corinth from Athens and found a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Anybody ever heard of Aquila and Priscilla? Okay. Priscilla and Aquila had recently come from Italy when the Emperor Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul came to Priscilla and Aquila. He stayed with them and worked with them as they were all tent makers. Now, when someone says tent maker, you may be thinking a factory in Kansas that makes tents out of polyester and waterproof materials and so on. We're talking a different kind of tent. As a young rabbi student, Paul learned the, the, the trade of tent making, which involved working with leather. Paul's home province of Cilicia was noted for its cloth made from goat's hair. So Paul probably learned to skillfully make tents out of this kind of cloth. So the Lord used Paul and Aquila and Priscilla to help plant the church in Corinth. And that's what's noted in Acts 18. But today we're going to take a, a closer look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 10. And here's what it says in verse 10. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Note the second part of the verse. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Well, just to define the word divisions a little bit more closely, the Greek word for divisions also means split, schism, break, or strife. So let there be no split. Let there be no schism. Let there be no break. Let there be no strife in the church. And then going on, if you see verse 11, 
It says, for some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Well, the New King James Study Bible says this about the four factions in the Corinthian church. The first group that followed Paul were likely attracted to his ministry because he ministered to the Gentiles. And in most cities where Paul went, he started by going to the synagogues, reasoning with the Jews about the life, death, ministry, and resurrection of of Christ. And often in those cities, the Jews would despise or persecute him and chase him out of town. Well, then Paul would go to the Gentiles, often in that same city. He'd teach about Jesus, and he saw a better response from them than he did the Jews. So that's the first group that followed Paul. The second group followed Apollos. They may have been attracted to Apollos because he he was an eloquent speaker. He was from Alexandria, Egypt, not Alexandria, Virginia. And Alexandria, Egypt was a learning and cultural center of the world. Acts 18, verses 24 to 28, tells us more about Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila. And the way it, the way it happened was in Ephesus, Apollos was preaching, and Aquila and Priscilla were listening to him. And verse 25 of Acts 18 tells us that Apollos only knew of the baptism of John, which is hard for us to believe, which, is, which was the baptism of repentance. So apparently Apollos did not know about the finished work of Christ on the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, or the sending of the Holy Spirit. So verse 26 tells us that Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately so that he would know the rest of the story, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the second group that followed Apollos. The third group followed Peter. This group was of Jewish background. Peter, as you know, was a key leader among the apostles and the growing church around the Middle East, the the Mediterranean. And you and I are blessed by reading Peter's epistles, 1 and 2 Peter. But Peter also, in addition to writing those, in addition to being the apostle, was an accomplished fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. So that's the third group. And then there's the fourth group who says they followed Jesus. They may or may not have been a godly group. On the surface, it might appear that they were the godly group, but Paul did not compliment them. Apparently, they also caused strife. Verse 
So let me go back to verse 12. If you look at that in your Bible. And let me just read this with a little Carl paraphrasing. I only follow Paul. I only follow Apollos. I only follow Peter. I only follow Christ. Or only Peter teaches the true way. Or only Paul teaches the true way. Or only Apollos teaches the true way. Or only Christ teaches the true way. But let me also paraphrase it another way. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. Aren't you proud of me? I follow Peter. I follow Christ. The emphasis here is on I or me. For how great I am. Because I follow my teacher. And, by the way, only my teacher teaches wisdom. And I am a very wise person because I follow my teacher. And my teacher has the best insight, so I have the most insight. All the others are foolish. Does this sound like bragging to you? You can shake your head if you want. Well, verse 13, let's look at verse 13 of this passage. And Paul asks three rhetorical questions. Now, a rhetorical question doesn't usually invite a specific answer. Rhetorical questions. And the hopeful answer to these questions, by the way, is no. Let's see. The first question is, has Christ been divided into factions? The second question, was Paul crucified for you? Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Was Paul crucified for you? The third question, were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, wait a minute. In verses 14 through 17, Paul pointed out that when he baptized people, you identify with Christ, not with the person who baptized you. Is that right? Baptism does not line you up with a human leader or a faction in the church, but with the Lord himself. Is there an amen in the house? The Corinthians, who thought so highly of themselves, had twisted the truth. The teacher they followed, Apollos, or Paul, or Peter, or Jesus, 
became the rallying point for the Corinthians' quarreling and strife. And they likely thought they were justified because they had the inside insight into wisdom. And the word Sophia, the Greek word Sophia was wisdom and Greeks were all about let's find the ultimate source of wisdom. They were carrying on this quarrel, thinking they were so wise. Unfortunately, the Corinthians probably also despised Paul. They likely thought their faith was superior to his because they had the superior wisdom. They likely thought of Paul's teaching as milk for babies, where they, the Corinthians, who were so smart, were now eating solid food of a superior faith taught by their teacher. They were more, far more mature than Paul. And besides, if they followed Apollos, Apollos was much more eloquent than Paul, who didn't speak very eloquently. So, in addition to quarreling with each other about their teacher, they probably said things like, my teacher, Peter, Paul, Apollos, or Jesus, is better than your teacher. My teacher gave me more insight than your teacher. My teacher is great. His teaching is great. And I am great because I follow him. Is this twisted? Well, I follow Paul alone, is what they could have said. Or I follow Apollos alone. Or I follow Peter alone. Unfortunately, that sort of thinking has followed Christians over the years. I follow the Presbyterians, or the Anglicans, or the Baptists, or the Methodists, or the Lutherans. Unfortunately, with that thinking, we may not, which may not actually be said, sometimes goes this kind of thinking. My group is the only one with the truth, or all the other groups just have it plain wrong. By the way, brothers and sisters, there is one heaven filled with believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you agree with that? Some of you agree with that. Do you agree that there's one heaven? There is not a separate Baptist heaven. There is not a separate Methodist heaven or a Lutheran heaven. If you and I think that the only people in heaven will be just like me, we are sadly mistaken. We will spend eternity with other believers from all walks of life 
and churches from all over the globe. We need to get we need to start getting along with each other now and not wait until we get to heaven. Do you agree with that? Now, have you noticed photos of the students at the revival at Asbury University, which are wonderful photos? Methodists standing shoulder to shoulder with Baptists, with Pentecostals, and many others. What is happening at Asbury is not about a particular teacher or teaching. It's about Jesus touching humble hearts who are hungry for God. Amen? In heaven, as we worship God, like I said, we will be standing shoulder to shoulder with men, women, and children from every tribe and nation. It's not about whose teacher is better or smarter or more right. It's about worshiping the Lord and giving him glory. Let's move on. I'm going to take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The NLT version describes the Christians in verse 1. Paul says, I couldn't talk to you as spiritual people, but as infants in Christ. Have we heard that thought earlier this morning? Where I was suggesting that the Corinthians thought of Paul's teaching as milk for infants and their exalted teaching as being solid food. But Paul says, I couldn't talk to you as spiritual people, but as infants in Christ. Verse 2, milk and solid food and the contrast between them. And in verse 3, Paul says, you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous and you quarrel with one another. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? I follow Peter. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow Christ. Babes, spiritual babies. Paul spoke of the Corinthians as spiritual babies who could only drink milk and not solid food. But the Corinthians, in their exalted view of themselves, probably thought that they were the ones who ate the solid food. And Paul, in his inferior teaching, was like milk for babies. Wow, is that, is that twisted? Rather than being a baby Christian, Paul wanted them, the Corinthians, to grow in their Christian faith. Now, babies are cute. Aren't babies cute? I love babies. Kathy and I had four children, and we have 11 grandchildren. We love babies. The Corinthians were spiritual babes. 
Babies try to, have you ever, a baby trying to hold a bottle and drink a bottle for the first time, is that, that's a little awkward, isn't it? They need a little help, don't they? Holding that bottle, propping it right so they don't just get air. But God wants spiritual babies, new Christians, to grow up so they don't stay spiritual babies. Well, so here we are at a crossroads. Sometimes when you and I read 1 Corinthians 1 or 2 or 3, we tell ourselves, Carl, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not having that problem. I have friends who go to different churches. We respect each other. We don't argue about being a Methodist or a Baptist or another denomination. Come on, Carl, let's talk about something else. And my response is, just wait a minute, not so fast. Let's drill down a little deeper. So you get along with people who go to different churches. Plus you get along with your neighbors. No squabbles, no strife, no issues. So how does this passage apply to me? I'm glad you asked. So let's drill deeper. But what about you and your spouse? Or you and your family members? Or former friends? Is there strife, divisions, offense, arguments, or, and please don't answer this question out loud. This is a rhetorical question. Is there unforgiveness between you? Who are you not speaking to? If you do talk to these people, is it just superficial and polite on the surface because of hurt feelings? Do you steer clear of the minefields, the difficult topics, where under the surface there are hurt feelings, misunderstandings, unresolved offenses, and simmering anger? Well, oh, maybe by now you see how this passage does apply to you and me. Let's just say that you and your spouse or you and another friend or you and someone else had some friction which led to unkind words or strife or to one of you being offended Tempers may have flared. Someone may have leapt to a conclusion or had hard feelings. How are we supposed to deal with that? Or do we just pretend it isn't there? Do we just build a fence around it and just pretend with each other? Well, let's look at Jesus' words about resolving conflicts with other people. Whether they're conflicts between Peter, the followers of Peter, the followers of Paul, the followers of Apollos, the followers of Christ, or whether they're between you and your spouses and your friends and your family members, anyone else. 
Matthew 18, verse 15, and I'm not sure if that is on the projection screen behind me or not, is it? Can you see it? Well, Matthew 18, verse 15, would you turn there, please, in your Bible? Jesus is speaking. And Jesus says, there it's on the, on the screen now. Thank you, AV team. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. Now, I understand that this is step one of a three-step possible process, but I want to focus on this step at this point. Do you and I follow this, or have we made up our own steps? Do we take our gripe and tell it to everyone else under the sun and not talk to the person who offended us? Or better yet, do we put it on social media? I am so upset at so-and-so. Have you seen people that do that on social media? I'm so upset at them. They said this. They said that. I wish they'd said this. Why can't they straighten up? And then there's the whole chorus of, oh, yes, you poor thing. I'm so sorry for you. Yes, you have it so bad. Let's sing a somebody done somebody wrong song about you and your problems. Now, that's not the Jesus way. The Jesus way is go to your brother in private, point out the offense. If the other brother or sister listens and confesses, you have won that person back. Brothers and sisters, our relationships and dealing with offenses in our relationships will be transformed if we will follow Jesus' words. Do we jump to conclusions about someone when we're offended by them? When we're angry, I'm, I'm mad at him. Do we jump to conclusions? Do we say, I know what he was thinking? We think we can read their minds. Do we judge them? Do we sentence them? Do we put them in jail and throw out the key? Or are we willing to, willing to resolve the conflict the way Jesus spoke about resolving conflict. My assertion is that if we will follow the Jesus way, things will start getting resolved biblically, wisely, in a healthy manner. Amen? Well, let me just push this a little further here. I think so, some, of, some of us here, some of you here, were participating in the church's marriage conference over the last couple of days. Is that right? Some of you were part of that. Unfortunately, I wasn't. 
Well, in, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our, in our relationships with our husbands and wives, we need to start in a healthy way. Strife, quarreling, unforgiveness, and grudges all break down and can ruin relationships. Today, however, is the day to start doing something about changing your ways. This is not a sermon where you need to elbow the person next to you and say, you know, hey, are you listening to this? You, you need to shape up. Now, are you listening to what Carl's saying? Come on, come on. This is what you need to No, this is about you. This is about what you need to do. This is what I need to do. You know, whenever you point your finger at someone, there are four, three or four fingers pointing back at you. Have you noticed that? Well, Ephesians 4 verse 26 exhorts us, and it says, to not let the sun go down while you are still angry. We need to try to resolve misunderstandings before the day ends. Don't let it simmer overnight. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you gone to bed? Please don't answer this question out loud. Have you gone to bed mad with your spouse before? Has it been a little icy on the pillow? Facing this way, she's facing, you know, we're, we're just, we're not going to talk about it. Well, you need to talk about it. You need to resolve it. Paul in Ephesians says, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't put it off. Don't let it simmer like the crock pot. Don't wait for the other. I'll, I'll, I'll fess up if they fess up first. If they apologize to me, oh, then I'll apologize. No. You take the first step. And you try to make it right. As we follow Jesus' pattern for dealing with offenses, here are four words that I suggest become part of my vocabulary and yours. Are you ready for the four words? Will you forgive me? Now that wasn't so hard to say, was it? Can you say it and mean it? Own up to what you said or did. Own up to how you offended the other person. Make it right. So, Carl, how does this apply to Lent? Well, I'm glad you asked. Part of Lent is repenting of things and humbling ourselves before God. And perhaps some of the things we need to repent of involve our relationships with each other and issues in our relationships with each other. And again, this is a rhetorical question, but is the Holy Spirit identifying areas to you as you listen to me where you need to repent. We all need to lay down our fleshliness, 
our quarreling, our strife, our defensiveness, our offensiveness, our sharp words, our boasting, and our self-focus. Now, by the way, anybody here ever see the movie uh, Mary Poppins back in the day? There was a little something that Mary Poppins said at one point in the movie. Someone asked her how she was or what she was like, and she said, I'm practically perfect in every way. Well, let that not be your attitude about yourself, myself. We are not practically perfect in every way. We all have some warts, and we're able to learn today from the warts of the Corinthians and think about our own warts and lay them down and repent over the next six weeks is Lent. I invite you to respond to the Holy Spirit if he's speaking to you through this message. If he's showing you something in your heart that needs to change or an unresolved issue in a relationship that you need to make right with someone. Now this takes courage. You and I need to give up quarreling for Lent. We need to give up strife for Lent. We need to give up defensiveness. We need to give up sharp words. We need to give up unforgiveness for Lent. And we need to give up boasting or bragging like the Corinthians were doing for Lent. We need to give up unhealthy disagreements for Lent. So ask God what needs to change in your heart. Seek to have an open heart to areas the Lord wants to challenge and change you. To go back to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, which says it was God who made it grow. Because he talks about how one planted, one watered, but it was God who made it grow. If the Holy Spirit identifies strife or quarreling or unforgiveness or grudges in you, in me, those are weeds that will choke a healthy plant. Get rid of the weeds and let the plant grow. Let your spiritual life grow. So if the Holy Spirit prompts you husbands and wives of areas that need to be resolved, then please talk to your spouse. But this call doesn't just apply to married couples. Maybe you are single and the Holy Spirit has identified an area where you need to go to another person and resolve things. And I'm just, as I, as I wrap up this message, I'm going to invite all of us to respond. You're invited to either do that in your seat with your spouse or with the person you need to resolve it with, or you can come up to the front to the kneelers and do business with God. Get your hearts right. But maybe you need to get things right with someone who's not in this room. Maybe they live near you, across town, 
or hundreds or thousands of miles away. You can always write them a letter or pick up the phone and give them a call. If the Holy Spirit nudges you to make it right, don't ignore his promise. Don't, don't say, I'll do that tomorrow. Okay, Carl, I hear you. I'll think about it. I'll take it under consideration. I'll do it tomorrow. Don't wait till tomorrow. Do it today. And I'm going to invite the worship team. Please come up at this point. Come on up. And I'm, I'm just asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you touch the hearts of all of us here today? That we would have open hearts to how you want us to resolve issues of conflict with other believers or with our spouses or with our friends or with our family members or with co-workers or people that we haven't spoken to in years. Give us courage and strength to do that. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to own up to our attitudes own up to things that need to change in us so that we don't have the same attitude that the Corinthians had. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. I am of Christ. And my guy is the best. Let's be humble servants of the Lord. Worship team.